Have you ever considered the fact that God made us to desire each other? He's designed us with inbuilt longings to give and receive affection, intimacy, and love. He's the one who dreamed up human attraction, infatuation, romance, and desire. He invented marriage. He introduced man and woman to each other and then blessed them. And over the last month or so, we've talked about how singleness is not a problem to be fixed. Like, it's not an inferior relational state or an immature spiritual stage of life. It's a good, God-given life stage that can showcase the sufficiency of the gospel. And yet, at the same time, we want to affirm that the desire to give and receive affection is also a good, God-given desire that we can rightly pursue in appropriate ways. But boy, have we ever taken these desires and confused and corrupted them. Just in recent decades, like this goes all the way back to the beginning of human history, but just in recent decades between the, the sexual revolution and the romance movie industry, the modern hookup culture, the approval of cohabitation, the Christian purity movement, the rise of social media and text messaging, and the proliferation of dating apps and websites. Things are arguably more complicated, more difficult to navigate than ever for Christians and Christian singles specifically. This week, CBC even published an article about finding love in the metaverse, VR, virtual reality. Throw in a a whack load of contradictory dating advice, and it gets even murkier. You'll hear people say, date for at least a year, or never date for more than a year. Date primarily in group settings, and also prioritize one-on-one time together. Put clear boundaries in place, but don't follow everyone else's rules. Marshall Seagal summarizes, even though we're following Jesus and reading the same Bible and aiming for the covenant of marriage, our dating advice can be surprisingly wide and diverse. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and a billion different dating tips. (laughs) Even the Bible can seem to shake its head in bewilderment at romance. (laughs) In Proverbs 30, it says, Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin or a young woman. It's like the author looks at love and goes, it's wonderful, and it's also incomprehensible. I don't get it. So, how should... A Christian approach dating and romantic relationships in this day and age. Since we're in Canada in 2022, I'm going to assume that most of our relationships will take on the cultural flavor of dating, for both better and worse. 
our culture doesn't do family-arranged betrothals like they did in Bible times. And that's not wrong. Just because a cultural practice is described in Scripture doesn't make it the normative or morally correct way of doing things. Now, you may hail from a culture that does things differently than North America, and that's okay. God's people have always had to be wise and discerning about how to pursue love in every cultural context that we find ourselves in. Now, if you are not single today or not exploring the dating scene, this topic, I believe, will actually still apply to you. If you're a kid, no matter how many cooties exist right now, one day that will change. If you're married, your kids and your grandkids will be navigating this one day if they aren't already. And you'll be wanting to give them good guidance and godly advice. All of us often offer our advice, solicited or not, to brothers and sisters in the church. And I can attest that some very unhealthy situations have been caused by well-meaning people with terrible advice. So we want to give good advice, godly guidance. And so uh, what I want us to do today is to seek out true wisdom together from God's word and let it shape our hearts and our minds. So we're continuing our home life series about how our faith impacts our home relationships. And as we consider dating today, there's so much I could say, but won't have the time to. So I'll provide some recommended resources later online or by request, and I also welcome any questions you might have afterwards. So we'll be jumping around a lot, but you can go ahead and open a Bible and turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 8 to begin. Song of Solomon 8, almost right in the middle of your Bibles, and the page number is on the screen, page 564. I'm going to start with the assumption, the premise, that yes, you may pursue affection in opposite-sex relationships. It's allowed. And like we established, God created our desires. He created marriage. He's in favor. At the same time, Scripture doesn't spell out how to pursue marriage in detail. And I believe that we ought not to forbid what Christ or his word do not forbid. You can pursue affection. Doesn't mean you need to. Doesn't mean you always should. But if and when we do, here's the first way I think the Bible will instruct us. That we should pursue affection with a wise respect to timing. Right, we should pursue affection. When we pursue affection, we should do so with a wise respect to the timing of it. And I mean this in a few different ways. First, look down at Song of Solomon 8 with me, and in verse 4. It says, Solomon's bride speaking, and she cries out, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, this warns us to not pursue love, that's romantic or erotic love, at all until the time is right. How do we know the time is right? Well, that's where we need wisdom. 
discernment. There's no one right answer here. The woman in Song of Solomon is particularly concerned about the dangers or the power of sexuality, that there is a, a right time to awaken beautiful, godly, erotic love, and that's in marriage. But it's too powerful, too sacred, even too dangerous to use outside of it. So here's one question you could ask. Are you ready to be married in the foreseeable future? Are you ready for the emotional weight of a, of a relationship or even perhaps a breakup? Do your family and mature friends think that you're ready? Have you asked them? Has God brought a good and godly prospect into your life? Like Those would be good signs. But if not, then I would say the time is not right for romance. You're not ready to awaken this love. I adjure you, O daughters of Ottawa, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. For another way we ought to respect wise timing, Proverbs 19.2. We're not going to turn there. It'll be on the screen. It tells us, desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Now, this is not talking only about romantic desire, but I think the principle clearly applies that we don't move too fast. We seek knowledge in addition to affection. Both before dating and during dating, if you desire someone, also seek knowledge about them. Take the time to get to know them, observe them, befriend them, listen to them. Like if you're dating, get to know them, get to know each other in every area of life that you can, with family, with friends, at work, at play, at church, and so on. You could say that one of the main purposes of dating is evaluation. For that, you need knowledge. And you should be asking, am I meant to be with this person for the rest of my life? And you should be clear about your intentions from, and your expectations from the outset. Now, this doesn't mean becoming morbidly introspective or treating a date like a job interview. Neither does it mean that asking someone out is asking them to marry you. It's not. Like, don't get too serious too fast. Spend time together and see if you enjoy life together. You might ask, well, how long should I date someone? As long as you need to know for sure. When you know... When you know and you're engaged, that's when you can move more quickly. But marriage is way too big of a commitment to make to someone you're not sure about. And this proverb warns us that when we move too hastily, we can easily make big mistakes. For a, a brief tangent here, let's talk about if you're gaining knowledge and you're evaluating, you're getting clarity, and you decide that this just isn't the person for you to marry. What then? 
You might fear breaking up with someone because you don't want to hurt them or because you're afraid of what others around you, maybe in the church, might think, or because maybe you mistakenly assumed that you would marry the first person you dated. Whatever the case may be, you may have these fears. But when you enter a relationship, love means wanting the best for the other person, even if you don't end up being the best person for them. It's it's not loving to anyone to keep a doomed relationship going. When you're dating, when you're engaged even, you have not made a covenant yet. You're not fully committed yet. And thus, you are free to end a relationship at that point. And sometimes you really should. Don't be afraid to break up with someone, even in your church, right? Like, who cares what other people think? Go with what God thinks. And don't think that you'll then need to go find a new church family, okay? We've got a a really pathetic allergy to awkwardness these days. Sure, it might be awkward for a bit. That'll pass. And if you're a friend of a couple that breaks up, don't judge them or make them feel bad. Support them, love them, pray for them, continue being their friend. Okay, rant over. (laughs) Back on the note of timing. This one might sound harsh to some of you, but living together should be off the table completely. It's not the right time. It gives off an appearance of evil. It compromises your Christian witness. And if you're not simply giving into rebellion against God, it's playing with fire. Besides, modern studies, secular studies even, conclusively show that couples who cohabitate before marriage are far more likely to struggle and divorce than those who wait to live together. So even the desire to first test things out ends up often backfiring in the end. So watch the timing there. And one final way I'd add about dating with a wise respect to timing is that is when you're dating and you're not married, respect the time and season that you're in. You're not married. Period. So, don't act like you're married when you're not. Dean and Sarah talks about how we tend to see exclusive dating relationships as quasi-marriages. How couples quickly become entangled emotionally, spiritually, and often quite physically. But he says, for the Christian, if the only thing that changes when you get married is that you start having sex, something is wrong. This mirrors the world's idea of casually committed relationships, declaring a pretend marriage that God does not recognize. So, to sum it up, pump the brakes and chill out. (laughs) Boyfriends, you don't have any authority over a girl who is not your wife. None. 
girlfriends. To quote Seagal, don't let your mind marry him before the rest of you can. And both of you, don't make promises or vows until the right time. I will always love you. I will never leave you. Save it for the altar. Or at least the engagement. <laughs> Otherwise, the spiritual, physical, or emotional results can prove devastating. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart, your mind, your imagination from running ahead of where you are now and your current commitment level. You've got to have a wise respect to timing. But dating with the right timing is only part of the picture. There's another crucial factor, which is probably the clearest principle we're going to glean from God's word today. But it's also the area that our world has most compromised on. And this is what we'll see, that we should pursue affection alongside a strong pursuit of holiness. So if and when we pursue affection, it should happen alongside a strong, even a stronger pursuit of holiness. I kept you in Song of Solomon 8 for now because I want you to see here in verse 8. Look down where it says, these are other people speaking up now, and they say, we have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? So what this is saying is, is younger people, prepubescent people, especially girls, are likely to be pursued one day. And if there's someone you care about, like a sister, what should you do about it? It depends. Verse 9. If she is a wall... We will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. This is some imagery here. They, a city wall is meant to keep people out. A door lets people in and out. So this is a picture of either being sexually resistant or sexually promiscuous. So if your sister is like a wall, you honor her. And on the day that she's spoken for, you adorn her. It's like, it says, like building a battlement of silver on the wall. You proudly present her to her man. Solomon's bride was a good example of this. In verse 10, she says, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. But if your sister is more like a door, allowing men unfettered access. You try to protect her. And the principle is that we should seek to protect others around us, women or men, from sexual harm. It should be obvious today just how much harm is done in the name of sex. How much sexual trauma is perpetrated 
and not just through rape or assault, but also from sexual abuse, from harassment, and even from freely chosen immorality. Sex is not a bad or a dirty thing. It's a, as we've seen this fall, it is a holy gift from a holy God. It's a, it's a powerful uniting force. But outside the fireplace of marriage, the fires of sex leave scars and so much regret. So, why bring this up on the topic of dating? Well, if you have a brother or sister in Christ who needs protected, even from themselves, protect them. Now, you can't literally, if she's, a, if she's a door wheel and clothes her with boards of cedar, you can't literally build a fence or a box around someone. That would be illegal. <laughs> but you can talk to them, plead with them, pray for them, and try to fend off those who would harm them or take advantage of them. Also, if you are pursuing a brother or sister, don't be a door or don't be someone trying to use a door. Honor your bodies as holy. Don't lead people on sexually. Don't defraud them in any way. Consider this in relation to 1 Timothy 5. Actually, turn over there with me. 1 Timothy 5. Here we will see that all our relationships in the church are to be like a family. It says right at the beginning in verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Now listen, until you're married... A Christian significant other is to be treated like what here? A sister or a brother. That's your relationship. In other words, you don't mess around sexually with them at all. In all purity. Now, purity's gotten a bad rap in Christian circles these days. Because I would say that a whole movement got it wrong. The purity movement of recent decades was almost like a prosperity gospel, promising the best sexual fulfillment to those who were the most perfectly pure before marriage. It also essentially equated purity with virginity. Virgins were pure, everyone else wasn't. And there was rarely enough room for impure people to be purified by the gospel. The result was, besides a bunch of man-made rules, the result was people tried to abstain from sex or kissing or dating for all the wrong reasons. Out of fear of messing up out of fear of making God angry, of getting pregnant, of contracting an STD, or because of empty promises of great partners or great sex in the future. 
But as we've talked about recently, we're not meant to be shamed nor coaxed into purity. We're called to live pure and holy lives because of the good that's already happened to us in the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 4, for instance, we won't turn there, but I'll summarize. It tells us that the will of God for our lives, so if you want to know the will of God for your life, it says is to be sanctified, to be holy. And what are some of the main ways we do this? It says by abstaining from sexual immorality, by learning how to control our bodies in holiness and honor, not in passions of lust, and by not wronging or defrauding or exploiting others in this area. But why do we do this? It says because we fear the Lord and because the gospel is true of us. Because we know God, because he's called us, because he's given us his Holy Spirit. Or, or turn over to 1 Corinthians 6 with me. We read this a couple times this fall. I'm going to make the same point. 1 Corinthians 6, and starting in verse 13. says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So believers are promised a glorious future from God the Father. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So believers have been united, essentially married to Christ now. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Believers have been, become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We're bought with the blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. So do you get the logic there? If you're united to Christ, you've been graced by God, filled with the Spirit, bought by the blood of Jesus. The triune God has claimed you as his own. You no longer belong to yourself. You belong to him. Your body is his body. It's like, don't you see how loved and forgiven and purified and holy you already are? Does that sound like shame or empty promises to you? No. This is the, the positive, beautiful reality of the gospel that then becomes the incentive to flee impurity. It should be obvious how this relates to dating or romantic relationships. Your body and your boyfriend's or girlfriend's or fiance's body belongs to the Lord. 
that's awesome. Therefore, we do whatever we must do to pursue holiness. We do this as a team. Good boundaries are fine. Good accountability is fine. You know what's best? A strong love for Jesus and a desire to please him more than anything else. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We shouldn't pursue purity out of fear or shame. We should pursue purity for Christ's glory out of love for him. One of the the first questions a dating or engaged couple often asks is, how far is too far? Like, what's the line that we can't cross? Such the wrong question to ask. And we should be asking, how holy can we be? Like, holiness is, is much more of a direction or a trajectory than it is a line on the ground. So, you could ask, does an activity increase your love for the Lord and your joy or peace in him? Or does it produce lust, shame, or regret? Does it make you want to hide from the Lord? Those will be good indicators of whether something is helping you grow in holiness or not. Setting some boundaries isn't bad, Just be sure to err more towards caution than compromise. Be headed in the right direction. Marshall Seagal puts it well. If we're honest, we much more often like to err by wading into love too far rather than waiting too long to take the next step. You will be hard-pressed, though, to find a couple regretting the boundaries they made in dating, while you will very easily find those who wish they would have made more. As followers of Christ, we really ought to be the most careful and vigilant. And on this note, if you love Jesus and you want to pursue holiness, but your significant other is pressuring you otherwise, break up with them today. Maybe they think they have a right to your body. Maybe they want you to send them inappropriate pictures or they keep putting you into compromising situations. They don't fear God now when you're dating. Why would you assume that they're going to fear God later when you're married and much more is demanded from them? But there is one more thing I have to say here. As many of us will hear all this and and think, I'm already sexually impure. I've already sinned against God, sinned against others. What hope is there for me? And I'm here to say, there is so much hope for you. So much hope for you. Yes, you're a wretched sinner. But Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's the savior of sinners. 
you're ashamed and guilty. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're sexually defiled by yourself or by others. Jesus is meant for you. Like the very reason he came to earth, lived and died, was to shed his blood and purify people like you and me. That's why he came. Like run your eyes up to earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, to verse 9, which starts out pretty dark. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh no, we're doomed. Not so. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Like the saved people of God is made up of a whole bunch of broken sinners, including all kinds of sexual sinners. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Which means you too can leave all of your sinful past in the past today. Flee away from it. You can be washed clean of all filth, justified, declared righteous, sanctified, made holy. Like if you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, which I hope you'll do today, all of this can be true of you. You are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And like all of our relationships, our dating relationships need to be grounded in this gospel. The gospel of Christ never gives us permission or license to sin. See Romans 6, for example. There will be many times that we fail to live up to the standard of holiness that God gives us. And for that, we need the blood of Jesus to purify us from all unrighteousness. So we need the gospel for our failures, and we need the gospel to transform our ongoing desires. After all, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Loving Jesus changes what we want most in life. Changes what we want from our relationships. So if you crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So pursue affection with a wise respect to timing and a strong pursuit of holiness. That's a when and a how. But that leaves one large question looming. And that's the who, right? This is one of the most important questions. After all, we don't pursue affection for affection's sake, but to find someone to love. So, who should we be trying to find? What 
qualities should we be on the lookout for? How high or low should our standards be? As believers, who should we be dating? Well, I'm not going to act like Christian Mingle today and show you your matches. Sorry. But while there are other things to consider, there is one main biblical thing to look for. That's that we should pursue affection amid a primary devotion to the Lord. If or when you pursue affection, only do so when sharing a primary devotion to the Lord. Recall that 1 Corinthians 7, just on the next page here, says that, that married people's interests are naturally more divided, while single believers can be more undividedly devoted to the Lord. If you're dating, you fall into that category. You're still single, not married. So your devotion should still be undivided. That passage ends, though, with a a passing comment about widows remarrying, which actually sheds a ton of light on who we, anyone of a believer, should be willing to pursue. Look at verse 39, where it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Whom she wishes, only in the Lord. That's not just wisdom for widows. That's clear direction for all Christians. And we are free to be married if we wish and are able, but only in the Lord. In other words, we should only ever pursue marriage with a fellow believer in Christ. Or, turn over to 2 Corinthians 6 with me. It's a few pages over into 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. This is the last place we'll turn to today. More familiar verses here. Verse 14 and 15, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, Paul never mentions marriage or even romance here. But marriage and sex are the deepest forms of partnership and fellowship there are. So it definitely applies. Again, the motive, though, here for this prohibition isn't guilt or shame-based, but gospel-based. Skim your eyes over verses 16 to 18. It talks about us being the temple of God now. He lives among us. He is our God. We are his people. We belong to him. We're welcomed by God. He is our father. We're his precious kids And that's the reason. Therefore, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Combine these two passages in Corinthians with the frequent commands in the Old Testament to Israel to not marry foreign brides, which wasn't a xenophobic command. These were given 
for the sole reason of not falling into their idolatry and false faiths. And there, you combine all this, and there is a crystal clear biblical principle to only marry within your faith. But these say nothing about dating. Only marriage. So can we date unbelievers? Technically, maybe, but why? You go back to what's the purpose of dating in the first place? What are your motives? I mean, there's nothing wrong with dating, starting light, being fun, casual, and so on. But if the main goal is not to evaluate mutual interest and compatibility for marriage, then why even bother? It seems foolish and pointless to me, even dangerous. You could say that dating an unbeliever might not be sinful, but it can still be stupid. The Bible doesn't talk about dating unbelievers because it doesn't talk about dating. But it does forbid marrying an unbeliever. So why mess around with your heart and risk falling in love with someone that you aren't allowed to go any further with? Now, some may object to the premise. Why shouldn't we marry an unbeliever? It seems narrow-minded, severely limits the pool. Let me tell you why. If Jesus is the most important thing about you, and if you're a true believer, he is the most important thing about you. You don't want to jeopardize that. Tim and Kathy Keller wisely explained that if your partner doesn't share your Christian faith, then he or she doesn't truly understand it, understand it as you do from the inside. And if Jesus is central to you, then that means that your partner doesn't truly understand you. He or she doesn't understand the mainspring of your life, the ground motive of all you do. If you do marry someone who does not share your faith, then there are only two ways to proceed. One, if you are natural and transparent about your faith, your partner will find it at least tedious or annoying and even offensive, and you will just have to hide it all. The other worst possibility is that you move Christ out of a central place in your consciousness. You will have to let your heart's ardor for Christ cool. You will have to deliberately not think out how your Christian commitment relates to every area of your life. You will demote Christ in your mind and heart because if you keep him central, you will feel isolated from your spouse. And sadly... I have personally watched this observation come true time and time again. Some always will say, but what about dating with the goal of seeing the other person saved? And I respond, how about witnessing with the goal of seeing the other person saved? <laughs> I mean, dating someone's a really poor evangelistic strategy, and it complicates things big time. Sure, once in a while, God is gracious despite our foolishness and saves someone. 
More often than not, though, you get pulled down to their level, not the other way around. And then the rationalizing begins. Pastor Matt, it's okay. We love each other. As if love will make up for disobedience to the Lord. Or make everything just magically work out. Sometimes they'll convert to your faith, but only to make you happy or to get you. Not because they love Jesus or deeply believe the gospel. And then in marriage, they revert to little or no faith and you're stuck. So evaluating their motives in dating now becomes nearly impossible, quite risky. So, no, you should not flirt to convert or date to regenerate. Don't do it. Some of you might ask, what about finding a potential spouse in another church? Is that okay? Well, it might not be ideal, and it can cause some bumps in the road. It's not wrong. As long as it's a Bible-believing gospel-preaching church. Otherwise, they might not actually be a true believer. And you've got to be sure on this. Seagal says, The first rule in dating is the first rule in all of life. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You will not truly love anyone else if you do not love God first and most. And no one will truly love you if they do not love God more than they love you. That's more than the bare bones baseline. That's the absolute heart of the matter. What should you be looking for in a spouse? A primary devotion to the Lord. Salvation's the baseline. But an evident love for the Lord is by far the most important thing. They should be more devoted to Christ than they are to you. Full stop. Any kind of list that you want, that you should be looking for, falls under that heading. Not just a a believer in God, but a pursuer of God. Someone with godly character. Ladies, Proverbs 19.12 says, What is desired in a man is steadfast love or kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. So love, kindness, honesty. Men, you can think of Proverbs 31, and a God-fearing, virtuous, diligent, loving woman. And then, on a much less important level, you consider compatibility. Things like, do you enjoy one another? Do you like being together? Do you have fun as friends? You have common interests, common goals, common life paths. Have you, do, you, do you find them attractive or desirable? Have you discussed children? Do other people you trust view you as a good match? I would say to keep your standards high, but realistic. Can't expect perfection because we're all sinners. But these are the kinds of things you look for. Also, don't eliminate someone just because you don't find them physically attractive right away. Start with friendship. 
the broad base of friends and just see if anything develops. Beauty is great. It's God-given. It's also fleeting. And it should be way down the list. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman or a man who fears the Lord is to be praised. So, dating as a Christian is to date with the right timing, the right way, with the right people. You're not married, so you're not yet showing off the shape of the gospel. You're still technically single, which shows the sufficiency of the gospel. But even as you explore romantic relationships, you can show off some results of the gospel. Displaying trust and contentment in Christ through the highs and lows of a relationship. Forsaking self-interest and self-fulfillment. Not elevating a significant other to a, a God-like place in your life. And loving brothers and sisters through intentionality, clarity, purity, service, and sacrifice. Marshall Seagal concludes, More and more as the world is watering down dating, your relationship can be a provocative picture of your fidelity to Christ and the call to follow him. At the end of the day, who are your relationships for? Are they for you? For them? Or for him? Whether or not you, whether you actively are seeking human love or avoiding it, and whether you find it or give up on it, don't ever give up on pursuing your first and foremost affection in the Lord. Just read this week from Dane Ortland, who said, The love of Christ is a love next to which every human romance is the faintest whisper. As we will sing in a moment, his love is, of every love, the best. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking your truth to us by your spirit. We pray that you would ingrain the truths into our hearts, root them in us, and may they bear good fruit. We pray you'd help us in this perilous world of, of modern dating as Christians. Those who are looking for love, we pray that you would guide them and love them and show them the way. And those who are supporting and seeing others do this, may we be godly examples, humble and holy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.